The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hello again. How's everybody doing? You guys seem like you're in good spirits tonight. That's good. Man, good to worship. Um, I didn't really want to stop. Um, let's pray. Father, I just thank you tonight so much, God, that, uh, that you're a God that's so worth talking about, <laughs> Lord, that your gospel is such good news, and Lord, that um, we can stand tonight knowing that the message of the cross is truly life-giving. God, no one in here wants to hear from me. I don't want to hear from me. God, I want to hear from you. Lord, I want to hear your heart. I want to know your power and your truth, God. So would you speak to us tonight, Lord? And like your sheep, Lord, may we hear your voice, your shepherd voice, God. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be here and be working. In Jesus' name, amen. So things had finally began to calm down after all of the craziness that had happened a few weeks before. Um, she still couldn't believe that it had happened. She thought about it often, even though it seemed like everybody kind of went back to normal life and just continued to do things the way they always had. Uh, she just couldn't seem to shirk the reality that her brother was dead in a tomb, and then he wasn't. That Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, this rabbi, this teacher, this, this man whom uh, she knew so well, whom had so many times stayed with her and her sister and her brother, uh, came and literally spoke, and this man came out of the grave and conquered uh, death because of the, 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 the power of this man's voice. And she longed and wanted so badly to, to, to show and to display to him her worship and her, her love and her thankfulness to Jesus for what he had done. And then all of a sudden she finds out he's coming. He's coming to Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, their home village, uh, where Jesus so often and so many times came to visit. Uh, she hears the news that he's coming, and she says, finally, I can, I can continue to show my love and my worship for Jesus. Of course, her sister Martha is busy, right, getting preparations ready, getting the house ready, getting food ready for Jesus' visit, and the disciples, they were quite a crew, so it took quite a bit to feed them and to house them and to take care of them, and Mary just wanting to be with Jesus, just excited for him to be there. And so as he comes and they're reclining at the table, okay, don't think like sitting up at a chair, think literally on the floor, kind of a table reclining, feet out to the side, all the disciples are there, Lazarus, her brother is there, Martha's in the kitchen serving, and, and, and Mary just overwhelmed with love for Jesus, overwhelmed with thankfulness for Jesus, wanting to show him that, thinks to herself, how can I? How can I show this man, how can I show this rabbi, how can I show this Messiah how much I love him? And as she's thinking this, she uh, more than likely looks over and, and sees something that she owns, a small jar. And, in, and this wasn't just any jar, this was uh, an extremely valuable jar because it was full of perfume. Um, not just any perfume, but, but the purest type of what was called nard. Basically, a year's worth of wages it would cost in order to 
purchase this jar, and it, it, it could have possibly been something passed down in her family, but either way, it was probably the most valuable thing that she owns. It's probably the most expensive thing, the most important physical thing that she owns. She looks over, and she sees it, and without even a second thought, she grabs it, breaks it open, goes up to Jesus, and dumps it onto his feet and begins to wash his feet with her hair and anoint his feet with this perfume. And the whole room begins to be permeated with the smell of this expensive ointment, a year's worth of money. Now, you guys have heard that story before. Um, three things there that are interesting about that, okay? First of all, she, without batting an eye, spent an enormous amount of money on something that would seemingly be a waste. She dumped it out. Something that was probably meant to be used over and over and over again for a long period of time was literally dumped out all at once. She broke it in order to get all of it out. A lot of people believe that the only way you could get into it was actually to break it open. So she wasn't interested in keeping any of it. She wasn't interested in using any of it later. She broke it. She was done. She gave it all to Jesus, which I don't know about you guys. It's kind of a scary thing to do. The second thing she does is she lets down her hair. Okay, which would, been, would have been in that time kind of weird. Kind of a, a strange thing to do for someone that isn't her husband to let her hair down in front of this man. And then thirdly, she shames herself even further by not only washing his feet, which by the way, the servants did that, um, but washing her feet with, or washing his feet with her hair. So this would have been a, even almost even a disgraceful, strange act. So not only is she, she giving over this large portion of money instantly, she's, she's putting herself in a vulnerable position. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can't think of, of three uh, other types of things more than that that give me knots in my stomach. Um, not a lot of things give me more knots in my stomach than when I spend a lot of money. Um, have you guys ever done that? Especially when you're not f- for sure it's going to be a good thing. Like you buy that car and you're like, man, this is more money than I have had in a long time. Buying my first car, I think it was like 3000 I handed over that cash and I had knots in my stomach because I thought, is this going to be a good car? Is it going to be a lemon? Am I going to regret this? Of course I did. Um, his first car is just how it goes. Uh, <clears throat> so not a lot of things give me more knots in my stomach than spending a large amount of money. And not a lot of things give me more knots in my stomach than when people around me are looking at me shamefully thinking that I am uh, evil, or thinking that I am a bad person. And thirdly, nothing gives me more knots in my stomach uh, than when I'm treated like I'm nothing. Okay? And what Mary was doing in that moment by washing his feet with her hair was putting herself in the place of a servant, basically saying, I am nothing in comparison to you, and I'm spending all of this savings and all of this inheritance or whatever it is on you instantly without any kind of thought. Now, I just want to pose this question to you before we get into the text. What could cause her to do that? What could cause her to, without even a thought, without even a regret, without even a moment's delay, to run over and to waste a year's worth of of money and to shame herself and put herself in, in a position where she could even be thought of as promiscuous? What could cause a woman to do such a thing? What would give her the freedom to not be affected by this? What would give her that freedom? This is what I want to talk about tonight. Tonight, I want to use Ecclesiastes chapter 6. For those of you that are new or, or, or don't know, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. So go ahead and turn there. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, after Psalms, after Proverbs. I want to use Ecclesiastes chapter 6 to try to answer this question. 
how could Mary do what Mary did? And we're just going to go verse by verse here. Um, these kinds of books are tricky, I'll be honest, to teach through because uh, they're wisdom literature, so they're very much kind of all over the place. He'll say one thought, and then he'll say another thought, and trying to connect the dots can be tricky, but uh, there's a theme here, if you'll follow me, there's a theme in chapter 6 that I think truly answers the question. So let's just jump right in. We're going to be looking at chapter 6 a lot, so no matter where we go, keep your finger there. Look at verse 1. The preacher, okay, Solomon, we believe, uh, is, is sort of ranting about the world. Okay, He's ranting about the way that he sees things, uh, the fallenness of the world, the vanity is the word that he uses continually of the world. And in verse 1 he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So again, you see he's observing the world. He is sitting with a raw and an unfiltered lens, observing the fallenness, the brokenness, the pain, the hurt of the world that we live in. Okay? He says there is an evil. He's observing this evil under the sun. Now, I've said this every week, but I'm going to say it again. Okay? It's important that we understand the theology of what Solomon is seeing, because he doesn't necessarily unpack it theologically. He says, man, the world really sucks, essentially. It's all vain. Thanks a lot, Solomon. Okay, but we have theology to understand why it's lame. Okay, we, we, have, we have Romans and we have Genesis 3 and we have a lot of helpful scripture that helps us to understand why what he's seeing is so bad. Okay, now remember that the world that we live in is not the way God created it to be. Okay, this is like so important as Christians that we understand the world that we live in is not the way that God designed it to be. We are living in sort of a remnant, if you will, uh, a ripple of what God had actually designed this world to be in. God made the earth, okay, and he made man in his image. He planted us in the garden. We walked with God. We were close to God. I've said this every week, but we're made of heaven and of earth, of dust and of God literally breathing his life into us. And then at the fall, we were disconnected from God and left with what? Dust, okay? Life in the dust. If I could label this whole series, it would be life in the dust. And we are here, and we have been here for thousands of years, living in disconnection to God. And everything is broken, okay? Can you say that with me? Everything is broken. Let's do it one more time. Everything is broken. All of it. Not just your car, not just your body, not just your diet. Oops, I broke it. Uh, not just your, uh, not, not just your, there's everything, not just your relationship, not just your, your marriage, not just your friendships, not just your parenting ability, not just your finance, not just your job. Everything is broke. Everything is affected by sin. Everything has been tainted because God has been pulled out of the equation. And what we get is, a weird, twisted, contorted idea of what God had originally made, okay? Sex is the best example, right? God made it, it's good, it's beautiful, but what we experience largely is a fallen version of it that has been twisted by sin and perversion, okay? Uh, all of the things that we could talk about in life, God made them, they're good, we've twisted them, sin has wrecked them. Sin has changed them. It's kind of like when you ever eat one of those little strawberry candies, those used to be my favorite, like have a gooey center. Nobody? Strawberry candy? They're hard candies. They're supposed to taste like strawberries, right? They don't. They taste like 
fake strawberry, which there is a very unique taste that is fake strawberry. Everybody knows the fake strawberry taste. But they don't, okay? It's supposed to taste like strawberry, but it, it doesn't. It just tastes like fake strawberry. What's funny, though, is if you had never actually tasted strawberries, you would think that's what strawberries taste like but it isn't. It tastes like processed sugar and chemicals. We're living in a world that's basically like a flower that's been cut off, okay? When you chop a flower off, it's still beautiful for a while, but it is dying. Why? Because it's not connected to the source of life anymore. It's not connected to the roots, okay? So that's why everything in our world is dying. That's why our bodies are decaying, okay? That's why our cars are dying, that's why things are broken all the time, because we're no longer connected to the source, and that is God. Now, in verse 1, he says, there is an evil. He says, there is an evil, and I was curious what he meant by that. So I looked up that word, evil, and basically, the Hebrew word comes from a root meaning of to spoil or, or to break in pieces, Okay, to spoil or to break in pieces. So in other words, this evil that he's observing in this world is brokenness. It's brokenness. It's not what it was intended to be. It's in pieces, okay? It was something beautiful. It's been ripped up. It's been shredded and spread everywhere. It's broken. Now, what is evil ultimately, though? This is important to understand. This will kind of fit in as we go. Evil ultimately is the absence of God, okay? Evil ultimately is the absence of God. Similarly, what is sin? Sin is the opposite of God's nature. What is hell? It's the absence of God's presence. What is evil? It's the opposite of God, the absence of God. Where God is not, there is evil, okay? When God is not in the picture, when God is not the picture, it is evil. So when God is not in your life, when God is not driving your life, when God is not fueling your life, ultimately you are going to do evil things, okay? That's the way it is. The absence of God is evil. Where God is absent, evil is presence, Now, it's important because what Solomon is seeing is ultimately the absence of God. We have wars because there is absence of God. He gave over stewardship to the world, to us, and we do a horrible job. We do a horrible job stewarding the world. Now, God is still present in the world, is he not? He's still causing the lilies to grow. He's still causing your and I's heart to beat. But it's on a timer. Things are winding down. So, he also says that this evil that he's about to spend the next chapter um, discussing in chapter 6, he says that this evil um, that I've seen under the sun, it lies heavy on mankind. Okay, it lies heavy on mankind. So, this this thing that we're going to talk about, this thing that Solomon is going to spend chapter 6 really observing, this evil, this fallenness, it's a heavy burden on mankind. So, the interesting thing about this is that we are all carrying weight right now. Okay? Uh, we're all carrying weight. I'm not talking about physical weight. I'm talking about a spiritual weight. And Solomon is about to peel back a curtain into what that weight actually is. The funny thing is, is we don't know we're carrying it. We don't know that we're carrying it. Uh, I just recently, uh, I don't know, six months ago, I lost, over, over a few months, I lost 65 pounds. Um, and it was really weird because I didn't even think I was overweight. Like, I really didn't. I was like, oh, no, this is what I'm supposed to look like. And then I started melting away, and I was like, oh, weird. Um, I didn't know I was fat. What do you know? So I was 65 pounds overweight, but I never felt like I was overweight. 
I never felt like I was just like assumed I was, that was what I was supposed to weigh. And, and the interesting thing, I, I took my son the other day and I strapped him on. He's a big boy. Uh, man, he's got to be like 25 pounds now. Um, he's just a, and I put him in the little front pack, you know, and I'm like, and I'm walking with my wife and I'm like, I can't believe how hard it is to walk with 25 pounds strapped onto me. How in the world did I used to walk around with 65 extra pounds strapped to me? I have no clue how I did it, but there is a weight that we carry, and most of us don't even realize that we're carrying this weight, and we're going to talk about what that is. It's kind of a, a similar thing. We watched, my wife and I watched a, a documentary about sugar, uh, which I don't know if you guys know this, but sugar is a drug, like straight up. It is a drug. Okay, I love it. Um, I mean, it's bad. We should all stop eating sugar. No, it really is a drug. So this guy, this, this young guy, this uh, European hipster, whatever, he, he doesn't eat sugar. He's healthy. He hasn't eaten sugar for three years. And then he decides that to make this documentary, he is going to, um, to, to make this documentary, he's going to basically uh, just go crazy on sugar for three months. And then he's going to document everything that happens to his body. And they're going to film it. So uh, he doesn't actually go crazy on sugar. He just eats the average amount that Americans eat, which is like 60 grams or something like that. And he didn't even have to eat desserts to do it. He just ate like, uh, you know, spaghetti sauce and ketchup and yogurt and those kinds of things. He's got plenty of sugar. So anyways, he's observing what happens to his body. And at first, like, he's super, like, lazy and groggy and fuzzy. And he can hardly even operate. But it was interesting, after a few weeks, he started to notice, um, not that he felt better, but that it just started to feel normal. You know, like, he still felt fuzzy, and he still felt tired, and he still felt like he was like this, all, you know, sugar, like, spikes your glycogen levels, and you're just all over the place. He still felt like that, but it just felt like it was the way life is now. And it's just like me, before I lost 65 pounds, I didn't even know I was overweight. It was just normal for me. Okay, and what, what Solomon is, is referring to, and what we're going to unpack, is this burden, this weight that we don't even know that we're carrying. Okay, this burden, this weight that, that we've just become accustomed to. The human body is amazingly resilient. It adjusts to whatever you do to it. That's why people can smoke and drink and eat bad for 30 years, and they're still walking around. Um, they're, they're dying, but they're still walking around. Your body's adjusts to it. The same thing is true spiritually. Okay, we adjust spiritually to our sickness. We adjust spiritually to this weight that we don't even realize that we're carrying. Uh, most of us have no clue how much this weight is affecting us. And what I want to do tonight is really hopefully open your eyes to see how much this weight that we're going to talk about is actually pulling you down, actually affecting you. So Solomon spends the next few verses kind of describing what that weight is. So let's look at it. Uh, verse 2. He says, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. <clears throat> okay, so what he's basically saying, what this weight is that we all carry, and we'll get deeper into it essentially, is this idea that even when we have things, we can't enjoy them. Even when we are blessed, we can't enjoy them. The weight is not that we aren't blessed. The weight is not that we're in need, especially not in the West, right? Uh, prefer, like the, the weight that we carry isn't that, oh, I just need stuff. The weight that we carry is, is that humans, we are unable to enjoy things like we ought to be. This is the weight that he's talking about. He's basically saying that um, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all of it, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy it. The principle here, the concept here, is, is this idea that even when we're wealthy, even when we're blessed, oftentimes we can't actually enjoy it. So, it's as if there's something actually keeping us from 
enjoying the blessings of our life. Here's some examples. Um, you know, the fact that we eat, but yet we're, we're never full, um, or, or we always want food later. Um, the fact that we, we long for success, but success is never enough, okay? Uh, the, the fact that whenever we get the thing that we always wanted, it never seems to fulfill us um, like we thought we would. Like, we long for relationship and romance, but yet half of uh, relationships and marriages in America and in divorce, Christian and non-Christian, uh, we long for success in careers, but as soon as we get to that point, we just want the next point. Uh, we long for friends, but always seem to want more. I mean, the list goes on. The reality is, is we never are able to enjoy the things that we have. This is like part of the fall. This is part of the weight that we carry. The weight that we carry is that we don't understand why these things that we have do not satisfy us and cannot satisfy us. And Solomon is drawing attention to that. Do you ever get the feeling you have something, you don't, you don't get, you ever get the feeling, I should be able to enjoy this. This is amazing. This should be satisfying me, and it's not. Like you plan the vacation, you have it all lined out, you have the money saved, everything is set up, you have a babysitter, it's just you and your husband, just you and your wife, you go, you sit on the beach, you do all the right things, you eat at the right restaurants, you spend lots of money, you go shopping, and it's still, you're like, there's no reason why I shouldn't be enjoying this like I ought to, but this is just simply not as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. Something keeps us from enjoying the things that we think and seemingly should be able to enjoy. The, the mom who all of her life, I mean, this is, this is just the way my daughter is too, and she has a doll in her arm every second. I mean, you see her in the nursery, she's just got, she'll go get the dolls right away. She wants to be a mom already. My wife has wanted to be a mom her whole life. Women grow up wanting to be moms, but how many women have become moms and all of a sudden it wasn't what they thought. They still love their kids, but it's not, there's not the enjoyment there. There's not the fulfillment there that they thought it was going to be. I thought once I had my family, I thought once I had my wife, I thought once I had my husband, I thought once I had the job, it was going to satisfy. But for some reason, I can't seem to enjoy it the way that I thought that I could. It's sort of like, have you guys ever had a dream where um, something crazy happens to you that you thought never could happen? Like you, you win the lottery and, and you, know, you win billions of dollars and someone's just about to hand you the check and right is about your end of the and you wake up. I mean, you guys have all had that dream, right? Am I the only one? Seriously? Dude, I have that dream all the time. I'm like, this is so cool. I can't believe it. And then right as I'm about to like reach the, the moment of enjoyment, the moment where you're like, it's my, I wake up and you know, my son's crying or whatever. It's like, I, I, and you can't, you can't get back to the dream. Like you try to fall asleep to get back to that and you can't do it no matter what. This is what it's like. We, we, we have so much buildup to things. Oh man, next year, when we save up all our vacation time and we go, or, oh man, next year when we get our tax return and we go and we buy a new car, that's gonna be so funny. You have all this buildup, but then once it happens, it's never what you thought. It's never as enjoyable as you thought, and it's usually like moments before you're ready for the next thing, okay? I, maybe we're just used to that, but that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. That is a brokenness, a sickness, an evil as he's observing. Something is wrong with us. We cannot absorb joy. We cannot be fulfilled like we were meant to be fulfilled. The moments of joy disappear quickly. They come for a minute, but they're gone. It's fleeting. Have you ever heard that saying, hope deferred makes the heart sick? We are sick because our hope has been deferred so many times by so many things and so many people and so many moments that we thought were gonna be it and they weren't. They weren't. And we are sick and we are carrying this weight, this weight of expectation of the next thing to fulfill us. Sometimes we actually like the idea of things better than we like the things themselves, right? 
the expectations we place on things in our mind cannot be fulfilled ultimately. Sometimes we, we make things bigger than they actually can possibly be in our mind. That's gonna be so cool and it really can't possibly be as cool as you thought it was gonna be. This is why Hollywood makes millions of dollars, by the way, right? Because they make things that are larger than life. They make movies that are actually more intense and more exciting and more romantic and more fulfilling than your life will probably ever be. And we are addicted to that. We are addicted to that moment where dopamine is released and for one second we feel like, wow, my life will never be like that, but I can vicariously live it through that guy on the screen. I mean, it's really what's why we watch movies. It's why we do many of the things that we do in our culture. For one moment, it makes us think that maybe there is something that can fulfill us. But even if we were in that movie, even if that was our story, even if that was us, it wouldn't be nearly as satisfying as the movie portrays it to be. The scary part is when you start to like the false reality better than the real reality. And man, you wonder why there's people that weigh 700 pounds and have never left their house and watched soap operas all day. They are, prefer that reality. I've literally seen it. They prefer that reality to their reality. They don't want to deal with their reality. They don't like their reality, so they are going to live through someone else's. Because at least that one gives me the smallest inkling of hope that there is something better out there than my life. It's a sickness. The preacher goes on in chapter 6, verse 3. He gives an example. You guys tracking? Everybody good? Everybody awake? Okay. Um, Verse 3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he... Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. So he's giving this example of this man, basically, who is very blessed. Uh, He gives the the example of this man having two things. One, uh, lots and lots and lots of kids. Uh, And by the way, in that time, in in these days, having many children uh, meant you were very blessed. Okay. Um, nowadays we have birth control and, and some people judge you if you have more than three kids, you know. Um, but back then it was a sign of prosperity. It was a sign of blessing. The Duggars would have been praised, right, uh, instead of judged. So uh, literally, the, you, the more kids you had, the more blessed you had. And the reason for that was because, first of all, it's retirement. Okay. There was no Social Security. There was no 401k. There was no playing the stock market. Your kids took care of you when you grew up. So you better love your kids, okay, because uh, you want them to take care of you. And the more kids you have, the more blessed that you are. They're free labor, cheap labor, which that's what I was when I was a kid too. Um, cheap labor. They, they worked the fields for you. They did the work for you. They carried on your name. They carried on your legacy. And what Solomon is saying here is that one of the biggest blessings you could possibly have is to have many, many, many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And, and then the second thing is he says to live a very long life. So this man who is living with lots of kids, with lots of life, but yet it says his soul is still not satisfied. It's an example of this man who's not, what, what more could you ask for? Eternal life with blessings that cannot be enjoyed, enjoyed is eternal hell, right? Think about that. Eternal life, living forever with things that you, cannot satisfy you is eternal hell. I don't 
want to live forever here. It would be hell, literally, because the pain that we experience over thousands and thousands and millions and millions of years would crush us. Man, we are literally unable to enjoy things the way that we are to, ought to. Um, I remember, perfect example of this, I remember there was a Looney Tunes cartoon, um, I can vividly remember it in my head, where uh, the cat is sleeping and he wakes up uh, to the owner saying, you know, we'll be back in a week, and they leave and lock the door or whatever, and uh, he, he's like, oh no, he's freaking out, and he goes over, he looks, looks at the little mail slot, and the milk uh, has a little note in it that says, be gone for a week, no need, no need for milk. And he freaks out, right? Because he's like, what am I going to eat, you know? And so the cat like runs all through, frantically through the house and he goes in the kitchen and he's opening the fridge and there's no food in the fridge and then he's opening every single cupboard and there's no food in any of the cupboards and finally gets to the last cupboard and he opens it up and it's full of tuna fish in cans, right? It's like full of canned tuna fish. And he's like, oh, and he's like slumps to the floor. He's like so thankful and so excited and he goes to grab a can of tuna and realizes that he doesn't have a can opener, right? <laughs> and, and then it flashes over, and guess who has the can opener? The mouse, right? So the whole cartoon is the cat chasing the mouse trying to get the can opener. And he finally gets a can opener in the end, and then he goes to open his can, and the mouse has locked it, and guess who has the key? The mouse. So it's kind of like this funny uh, but, but true picture of life. It's like we have so many blessings, especially in America, but we don't have a can opener. <laughs> we can't enjoy them. We have so much stuff. We have so much food. We have so much prosperity. We have so many friendships. We have so much capability and freedom and power and all of these things, but we cannot enjoy them. So we may as well not even have them. We cannot enjoy them. We need the key to enjoy these things. We need the key. Solomon is basically saying it would be better off, he makes a comparison, it would be better off to just have never been born than to live out a long life in this life, not being able to actually enjoy the things that we all have. Verse seven. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. That's kind of a cool verse. All the toil of his, all of the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We're eating and we're eating and we're eating, we're not getting satisfied figuratively. I mean, in, in life, we're taking in more and more things and more and more joy. We are a more-centered culture, aren't we? I mean, we are built on more. The Industrial Revolution happened because we all wanted more, better fridges, better microwaves, better whatever. I mean, we are a culture that is built on the idea of more, bigger houses, more clothes, more food, supersized buffets, all you can eat. I mean, we just want more of everything. And, and with, with the fact that we're getting all these things made in China and all these places now, even poor people can have everything. You can go to H&M and buy shirts for like $3. And you buy like millions of, I, I watched a documentary the other day about uh, how the, the, the dumps and the waste places can't keep up with the amount of garbage that we're making because everyone is buying more stuff than they used to. Even poor people are buying insane amounts of clothing because it's so cheap now. And they buy stuff that they don't even want. They just buy it to buy it. They want the feeling of buying it. I remember hearing a news story a while ago about a lady that had filed bankruptcy to the point where they literally took away her house and when they went to get her house, it was completely, completely filled full of Amazon Prime boxes. Never been opened. Like to the brim, like hoarder status, full of Amazon Prime boxes. And they couldn't figure out what in the world this gal did. She was addicted to the feeling of buying something, but she didn't even care about the thing. Isn't that interesting? She is faced with that reality. I want to feel happy. I want to feel happy. I want to feel happy. And with every click of buy now, 
PayPal, QuickPay, she clicks by and she gets that sliver of a second that maybe there is joy, maybe there is fulfillment, and then it's only replaced right after with the need to buy another thing. And she did it to the point where it completely ruined her financially. Solomon says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, but your appetite never is satisfied. We don't eat in our culture because we need it. We eat because we just want to. We don't eat things because they're healthy. We eat them because they taste good. We don't eat because we need the nutrition. We eat because we love to eat because we drown our sorrows in Ben and Jerry's. I do it all the time, right? Oftentimes, the more blessings we have, the more miserable we are. Isn't that interesting? The more things that we have, a lot of times, the more miserable that we are. Some of the most depressed people in the world today are rich. Our country leads the way in antidepressants. We sell more antidepressants than any other country in the world. We are depressed, and we are rich, and we are comfortable, and there seems to be a connection there. Um, it's, and here's, here's why. I truly believe that when you're rich, you know more than anyone else how much stuff doesn't satisfy you. So you're miserable. See, the poor person has this idea still that maybe if I was rich, I'd be happy. The rich person says, no, I don't, I, don't know, I don't have anything left. I don't know where else to go. I don't know what else to do. It's like a Costco sample, okay? Costco knows that if they give you samples, you're gonna buy it. Why? Because you want more. You can't just have one little bite. You have to have more. So you're gonna buy it. It's just the way that it goes. And the reality is, is that people that have much are miserable because they know more than anyone that all of those things they thought would please them won't, and they feel stuck. Uh, Jim Carrey famously said this quote. Maybe you've heard this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. This coming from a guy who's probably one of the most popular actors and famous actors that we have in the West. He says, there's nothing here. I've climbed it. I got up here, and there's nothing here. It's completely barren. And you know what's interesting? I drew a little picture to illustrate it on my paper, but what's really interesting is watch famous people. They are driven and driven and driven to the top and the pinnacle of their career by this idea that maybe if I get there, maybe if I achieve that, then I will find joy. And then watch what happens when they get to the pinnacle. They start going downhill. They start turning to drugs. They start just going off the deep end, going crazy. I mean, have you seen like Miley Cyrus, for crying out loud, what happens to these people? They hit the pinnacle of their career and they go insane. They start doing crazy things, they start doing drugs, they start sleeping around, they start all of this insane stuff because they freak out. They've reached the top and there's nothing there. What do you do? I got there and there's nothing here. So where else is there to go but down? And to try anything and everything else. The Bible sp speaks to this a lot. Ecclesiastes 5.10, uh, this was the homework I assigned you to read last week. Uh, it, said, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, and one of my favorite verses in the book, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. <laughs> and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, the more you make, the more you're going to spend. The more you have, the more people are going to use. Just ask any rich person, all of a sudden, they get people knocking on the door. Hey, will you pay my medical bills? Hey, will you buy my car? Hey, will you help me out? Where goods increase, so do those that eat them. In my case, where goods increase, so do the diaper money budget. Because the, more <laughs> the diaper budget keeps growing. Um, Matthew 6, 19, Jesus speaks to this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Paul speaks of this to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in his present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You get the point. The Bible speaks a ton about materialism. It speaks a ton about riches. Um, now, let's just take a, a second before we press on. And I want to I think about what are the implications of all this, okay? What are the implications of, of this weight that we're talking about, this weight of, of the idea that somehow things can please you, that, that life can please you? What this means for us is that many of our behaviors that we try to understand um, are really actually not that confusing, uh, that's, that's what I love about the gospel. It, it brings clear, it brings clarity to the whys of life. I mean, um, someone that doesn't know the Lord and doesn't have the gospel, uh, you know, they, they're very, very confused. There's, there's a clarity and a simplicity that the gospel brings. Um, so, for instance, uh, some of the bizarre habits and things that we do, this makes sense why we do them. Some of the crazy things that people do uh, to try to obtain joy, it, t- it all makes sense if you, if you understand Genesis 3. You all understand that we're, f- that we're fallen, we're broken, that we cannot satisfy ourselves with physical things. It totally makes sense, like addiction, okay? Now, I understand there's some psychological things in addiction and not, not all of it is, is, is as simple as this, but a lot of addiction is just simply someone being so dissatisfied in everything that they are willing to try anything. I mean, what could cause someone to give up their wife, their kids, their house, their family, their job, everything for one more hit of dope? Like what, or, or one more hit of crack, or, or one more, whatever it is, what could cause someone to give up everything for that? Well, if they genuinely feel like that's the only thing that makes me happy right now, they'll give up anything for it, even if it's just a moment. It explains addiction. We are hopelessly unsatisfied, hopelessly discontent with this world. And addiction is a lot of us just playing that out. We have to see behavior as the symptom, though, okay? Behavior is the symptom, not the problem. It's the symptom, not the problem. See, a lot of people want to address the behavior. A lot of Christians address the behavior wrongly, okay? Behavior behavior is a symptom. Everything that you do can be traced back to something that is deeper in your hearts. Everything that you spend your money on, everything you spend your time on, every word that comes out of your mouth, like James says, uh, every action that you take, every thought that you have is not just there randomly. It is traced back to something deeper in your heart. And the heart of man is abundantly wicked above all things, right? It's all traced back to a deeper thing. And the issue is never the symptom. The symptom just tells us what's going on at a deeper level. A lot of people think they can change by just simply adjusting the behavior. It doesn't work. It doesn't change anything. It just manifests it in itself. Oh, I have a drinking problem, but now I chew. Okay, well, you didn't fix anything, you know, or smoking and now I chew, or whatever it is. I mean, like, we, we just will trade thing, one thing for another thing because the issue is deeper than just simply our behavior. It runs so much deeper than that. You know, what could cause someone to someone, I won't say names, but what could cause like an NBA player who's really famous and has everything and everything he wants and any girl he wants and any mansion he wants and any car he wants to go and to to take advantage of a girl? What would cause him to do that? Dissatisfaction in everything that he has. He thinks, well, none of that did it, so maybe if I force myself on someone, that'll make it happen. It's all traced back to ultimately a weight of dissatisfaction that we are carrying 
that this world has done nothing for us. The path of sin is the path of being unsatisfied with creation. That's all it is. The more we are unsatisfied, the more things we try. The more things we try, the more things we have to keep trying. And the list will go on and on and on until we realize that there's nothing there. This is the weight of what it is to be human, okay? This is what Solomon is talking here. Now, just in case, uh, just in case you think that, oh, well, maybe the answer is just to go be poor and not have any material things, uh, he speaks to that. Ecclesiastes 6, uh, in verse 8, the next verse in our text, he says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. A lot of people have thought over the years, well, maybe if materialism is bad and maybe if money causes problems, then maybe the answer is just a simple life. Maybe the answer is just to be poor. I mean, the church has swung like a pendulum back and forth on this, hasn't it? Uh, like, either they believe that if you ha- are, 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 are um, favored by the Lord, then you're rich, or they believe that if you're actually spiritual, then you're poor, right? Um, we just kind of go back and forth and back and forth on that. And the reality is, is that being poor is not the answer either. Um, have you guys seen the tiny house craze? There's some friends that make tiny houses. I mean, this is a perfect, perfect example of this. Our culture is like, man, there doesn't seem to be much joy in materialism. Like, I'm buying 50 shirts at H&M every day, and I got a new couch at Ikea, and I'm just not happy. So let's go live in a tiny house. I mean, it's the perfect illustration of that. If you think about it, like, um, but are they happy in their tiny house? No. They're not. Because being poor is just as dissatisfying as being rich. Right? I mean, it's, it's all going to leave you dry, ultimately. And Jesus speaks a lot about money, I think, for that reason. Okay, not only does he say that, you know, beware of it, be careful of it, but he makes it very clear that not evil, not, not money is evil, but what? The root, I'm sorry, let me start over. Not money is evil, but the love of money, right, is the root of all evil. It's not, money is bad. Actually, it's when you love money too much, that is bad. And not only that, but yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, the person who thinks he will find joy in simplicity is really just simply trading in one disappointment for another. So, why is that important to bring up, by the way? Why is it important that we understand, okay, it's not being rich, but it's also not being poor? Because I've heard a lot of Christians and a lot of people say, you know, if we could just go back to the way it was hundreds of years ago, the simplicity, go out and milk the cow and pick up the eggs, and everything would be better and we'd all be happy. Totally not true. Read some biographies of people from the 1600s or read, some, some, read about the early church. I mean, it doesn't matter how simple or complicated. It doesn't matter if we just didn't have smartphones, if we just didn't have phones at all, if we didn't have social media, everything would be easier. No, it wouldn't. It would still be hard. It would still be complicated. Relationships would still be tough. Simpler doesn't always mean everything's going to be better. The reality is, is we're broken in every level. People are always people. Circumstances do not change man's ingrained dissatisfaction with this world. People were dissatisfied 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and they're dissatisfied today. People are people, okay? So don't think for a second, well, maybe if I just give all my clothes to goodwill, then I'll be happy. It's just another little thing that's not going to make you happy. You could do that if you want. I don't care. It gets even more bleak. Verse 10, he says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So essentially, you can't fix this problem. Okay, everybody look at me. You can't fix this problem. And let me tell you, I hate that. I hate that. I, like, seriously, I do not like the idea that I cannot control my joy. 
I don't like that. I want to be happy when I want to be happy. And I like to be happy all the time. I'm not the guy that likes to be upset. I like to be in a good mood. I like to be like this. And when I am not happy, I hate it when I can't help it. And I will do anything. Like, what's the book? What's the four steps? What's the product I need? Okay, come on, tell me commercial. What do I need? What's going to change my happiness? But the reality is, what he's saying is that there's nothing in this world that can change it, and you have no power over it. The weight is on you. You can't lose it. I'm sorry. No diet plan. Okay, we're not talking about physical weight. The diet plan, none of it is going to change the weight that you're carrying of this world. The weight of thinking that the world is going to satisfy you. It just will not. It simply will not. But we love to think that it can. We love to think that it can. It says in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And, that, and what is the advantage to man? In other words, you can talk about how to do it all you want. You can make up ways to do it all you want. But the more that you do it, the more vain it is. This is why self-help is so huge. I mean, you go to Barnes & Noble, there's a huge section on how to fix yourself. Okay? There's a huge section because everyone doesn't like the fact that they can't fix themselves. Everyone doesn't like the fact that they can't control their joy. This is why commercials have worked for a long time and will continue to work because you're telling someone, hey, you can fix your ailment. You can find true joy if you just buy my pillow or whatever it is. Um, you know, what, whatever it is, you can, you can find joy in that. The preacher continues to show that no man can answer these questions. Look at verse 12 and then we'll, we'll get into some some wrap up here. He says, for who knows what is good for man? Well, he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, this was a really interesting verse, because here's Solomon saying, who can tell man what he lives for? Who can tell man why he's here? Who can tell man where he's going? Well, I say to myself, well, Jesus. <laughs> like, th there is an answer for that. But, but what he's basically saying, and what the preacher unlocks by saying that is the mystery of what causes this weight. Okay? The mystery of what causes this pain is that we don't know who we are. And we don't know where we're going. When you don't know who you are, and you don't know where you're going, you don't know how to live. And so you think, well, the reason for life must be to please myself. It must be to satisfy myself. It must be to treat myself. It must be to be successful. It must be to work hard. That's the natural thinking. But when you know who you are, you know how to act. Solomon hits it on the right, right on the head. There is no hope when you don't know who you are. And the people out there, the lost, the ones that we need to be preaching the gospel to and bringing to church, they are completely confused about this. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. So they are living in a cyclical, broken system of trying to alleviate the pain of life. It's the next thing. It's all they're doing. But Jesus gives us answers. Jesus gives us keys. Jesus is holding the can opener to the tuna, okay? He, he has the answer, and I want to I park on that a little bit and understand what that is. To understand what the key is, you have to understand what the real problem is, okay? And here's, here's the real problem. Here's why all of what we talked about happens. We are eternal beings, okay? Now, follow me on this. This is important. We are eternal beings. We were created with in our DNA, sort of like this longing in, in this, we're, we're just, we're eternal. We were made eternal. We're made by an eternal God for eternal purposes, and we have eternal longings. But we are stuck in the physical, the temporal. So if we are created to live on a diet, if you will, of eternal, and we're living on a diet of temporal, we'll never be full. Okay? 
everything, look at this pulpit, okay? It's not really a pulpit, actually. It's like a bar table. Um, look at this thing. Uh, it has a beginning and it has an end, okay? Can you think of anything in this world that does not have a beginning and an end? It all has a beginning. It all has an end. Um, our earth, okay? Um, uh, the stars, everything. Everything in our world, everything that we know, everything that you can possibly get your hand on, it runs out. It ends. It stops. The food, it's gone. The movie, it's over. The money, it's gone. My life, it's over. It's all beginnings and end. It all ends. It's all temporal. It's all physical. But you were created to long for things that don't end. Okay? Because God designed you for himself. He designed you for himself. He is the only thing that can satisfy you. He is the only thing that never ends. He is the only thing that you'll never be dissatisfied in because you'll never run out of God. Eternity is God. Eternal life is this, that we might know him. John 17, 3, right? Eternal life is exploring a God that will never run out. And we can never be dissatisfied in him because there's never an end to him. There's always more of God. Everything that we think is cool was something that God made, but that ends. God doesn't end. He is the source. And I just want to tell you this. It's not a bad thing that you want to be happy. God designed you that way. You know that? It's not a bad thing that you wake up and go to sleep every day thinking about how to make yourself happy. You think that's an accident? You think that's sinful? It's not. It's actually the way God made you. He wants you to seek happiness. But he wants you to find it where it actually is and not where it isn't. He wants you to be so hungry that you will look to the only thing that can actually satisfy you, and that is him. He is the key. He is the satisfaction. Now, how does the gospel make this possible? Because here, here's where I, uh, theologically, I'm like, that's great, that's interesting, that's helpful, but let's bring it down to earth a little bit here. Um, okay, how does that happen? Because I still don't feel happy. <laughs> How, how does this happen? Okay, well, first of all, Jesus made it possible to access God. Not only did he die for our sins, not only did he live a perfect life and give us that perfect life, but he also created access to the Father through himself, okay? He is the high priest. He is the conduit by which we can find fulfillment in God himself. Jesus is the means by which we can find eternal satisfaction in God. So it all happens in him. He doesn't give us the key. He is the key. Does that make sense? He doesn't give us the can opener. He is the can opener. Okay? He is the way that we find ultimate satisfaction in God. He is the conduit by which our souls can be satisfied by his goodness. That's what the gospel is. That we were disconnected from God and Jesus came in and made a way for us to be reconnected to God through Christ. Okay, that is the gospel. That is the good news. Now, how does this change the way that we live? Okay, let's get into the practical. How does this change this understanding that the world has nothing for us, that Jesus is the only true source of joy? How does this change the way we live? Well, it, first of all, it allows us to place right expectations on life. Think about how free you could be if you actually thought of life this way. Like, like it would look like this. Your, your wife or your husband would be so much happier because you would no longer be expecting them to make you happy, which most people get married for that reason, right? I want that. That person makes me feel good. They make me happy. Let's get married. 
And then three or four years, things start to wear off, and it's over. You don't make me happy anymore. Sorry. What? Of course they don't make you happy. No one's going to make you happy. Why are Hollywood people cheating on each other? They're supposed to be the most attractive in the world. Okay? You're never going to make each other happy. You weren't designed to make each other happy. Your wife wasn't designed to make you happy. Your husband wasn't designed to make you happy. And think of how free your marriage could be if you actually were satisfied in Jesus to where your poor husband or your poor wife didn't have to bear that for you. Man, the freedom that would come in that. The tension that would be relieved in that. Think of how much fun your job would be if you didn't go to work every day with the stress of thinking, if I don't succeed, I may not be happy. If I don't make enough to get my RV and my boat, I may not be happy. If I don't get that promotion so I can feel good about myself and prideful about my position, I may not be happy. Think about how free you could be if you didn't care about that. You just enjoy going to work. Work hard because it's for God. I mean, the freedom that would come. You know, this is what Paul's talking about. In Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul got this. He says, everything in my life that I have that is physical or even everything that makes me who I am, it's all loss. And it's all loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He makes everything pale in comparison. If I'm dirt poor... If I have no money, and I literally have one pair of clothes and two dollars, and someone comes up and says, hey, can I borrow a dollar? I'm going to be like, oh, I really, like, like, that's my dinner tonight. That's all I have. Sorry. It's going to be really hard for me to give up the, that dollar. But if I'm a billionaire, if I'm a multi-billionaire, and someone comes and asks me for a dollar, I don't care. Take it. Who cares? This is how you will live your life if you see Jesus as valuable as he is. Take my life. Take my job. Take my, my health. Take my wealth. Whatever. It all pales in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He is so much better than all of this that you can take it. You can take it. Now, I can't honestly say I'm there. But good grief, that's my bullseye, man. I want to be at a place where my day is good no matter what because my circumstances don't dictate my job, my joy. My treasure in Christ dictates my joy. Man, what a free life that would look like. Now, back to our opening story, just to kind of tie it up here. Mary, there at the feet of Jesus, literally just giving all that she had to him, wanting to, to show him as much as she possibly can how much she loves him. What's happening there? Mary is free. She's completely free. She doesn't care about the fact that she just spent a year's worth of wages. She doesn't care about the fact that Judas, if you read the story, is sitting there judging her and saying, we should have gave that to the poor. She doesn't care about the fact that she might have uh, shamed herself by letting her hair down or that she looks like a servant wiping Jesus' feet. She doesn't care about any of that. It's garbage to her. She doesn't care because Jesus, the treasure, is there. She has him. He is the value to her. He is all that matters to her. Now, guess who wasn't free? Judas. Judas is not free. He doesn't understand it. He's so confused. How could you do that? Why should give that to the poor? And it, it, it says because he was a thief is why he was really worried about it, right? But Jesus, Judas is sitting there just completely confused because he is carrying that weight. He doesn't have the freedom that Mary has. He says, how could you possibly just waste that? And in his head, he's thinking, I would have kept that for myself. 
the difference between the two. She is free to give everything that she has. Judas cannot possibly imagine what that must be like. So when you get this, how, does it ma- how should it make us think about life now? Okay, because the reality is we still live in a physical world. We all have, you know, a lot of us have kids, a lot of us have spouses, a lot of us have jobs, a lot of us have finances, and a lot of things that we enjoy, blessings. How are we supposed to think about those things in light of this? Okay, well, a few things. Um, first of all, think of them as reminders of how much greater God is in that thing. Every time your wife says something that disappoints you, think, oh man, love my wife. I'm so glad that Jesus is my real joy. Every time that your kids disappoint you, every time something doesn't work out at work, you say to yourself, well, I really didn't expect anything more. Why would I expect more? I mean, that can't satisfy me. The Lord is my joy. He truly is enough for me. So things can remind you of how much greater he is. Um, Secondly, um, things and blessings and good things in life can remind you of the source of good things. So, you know, when, when your kids climb up in your lap and give you a big kiss and you're just so blessed and so happy in that moment, you think to yourself, man, this is only cool because God made it. You know, when, when you're blessed financially or you're blessed to go on a vacation or any of the things that, that we all love to, to do and get to do, you don't need to feel bad about that, but you think to yourself, man, this was created by God. He is the source of that thing. If this is good, imagine how much better the one who created it is. Thirdly, things are avenues by which to worship God. Man, Mary saw that and she didn't think, oh, I can't wait to spend that. She thought, I can't wait to use that to worship the real value in my life. Man, our kids, our jobs, everything that is good in life, our spouses, all these blessings in life should be a means by which to worship God with because he made them. They're all gifts from him. My kids now are a reminder of God's love for me. They don't have to, they don't have to, to, to be honor student. They don't have to, uh, you know, hit a home run and t-ball. Like they don't, they don't have to go to college. They don't have to do all these things that we put weights on our kids because honestly, they, they're not my joy. The Lord is my joy. They can just be. Imagine the freedom your kids would feel, our kids would feel, if we weren't making them little idols. So, how do we do this real practically? Just, just lastly, a couple things. First of all, we need to be able to identify when this is happening. We need to be able to identify when we're stacking the weight back on, where we're saying, oh yeah, this can satisfy me, this can satisfy me. Um, here's a perfect example. I'm gonna be really, really honest with you guys, okay? Last week I preached, okay, up here, and it was the weirdest sermon ever. I was preaching to you guys, everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. and while I'm preaching, I'm literally having this inner dialogue, like this subconscious. I think I was seriously getting attacked like I've never been before. Like, the things going through my head were like, you suck at this, everyone is confused, everyone's bored, everyone wants to go home, shut up, go home, just stop. Those were the things, literally, subconsciously, like, were going on in my head. And it's so crazy, I'm like, man, I must have been really being attacked. And I went back and listened to it a couple of days ago, and I was like, it's fine. What was he tr- tripping about? Like, it's so weird. But here's what happened, okay? If I can be vulnerable with you for a minute. Here's what was happening in that. I was having an identity crisis in my subconscious while I was preaching to you guys. Isn't that crazy? Uh, what happened is at some point in the last couple weeks, happens to me all the time, um, I, pre- I preach for a living, right? This is my job. So I'm a pastor. Uh, I do this stuff. So it's really hard for me to not make this my identity. 
It's really hard for me not to make this my thing. Oh, I will be happy when I'm a senior pastor. I will be happy when I preach, uh, you know, and people listen to my podcast. I'll be, whatever. There's so many things that I can make my identity, just like all of us have. Well, for me, largely, mine can be my job. Okay, and so what had happened is in a couple weeks, somewhere, somehow, I had made too much of preaching. I started to make it this thing that, well, I thought, well, maybe this thing makes me happy, and maybe I'm good at this, and maybe this is something I can do, and blah, blah, blah. And then when I started to feel like I was struggling, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm freaking out in my subconscious, like, oh no, maybe I'm not good at this. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. What am I going to do now? No one's going to hire me. I don't have experience. I didn't go to college. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm freaking out in my subconscious to the point where I'm literally apologizing you guys for my message because I'm going through an identity crisis. I don't know. What if this isn't, if this isn't who I am, then who am I? I don't know. What am I going to do? Okay, we need to be able to recognize those things and say, wow, okay, um, something's wrong. I'm not finding my identity in Christ. I'm looking way too much to this thing. Now, when you get so irritated when your boss treats you like you're something not special, maybe stop for a second and think, well, maybe I think I'm special. Maybe I think that my job is supposed to be fulfilling me, and when my boss tells me that I'm not good at it, it's stroking that and, and showing me that. You know what I mean? Uh, we need to be able to catch these things and pick up on these things and, and, and sit down and say, okay, Lord, obviously something's out of whack here. Obviously, I made too much of this. I mean, when you freak out on your kids because they didn't do what you wanted to do, then maybe you need to sit down and think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Am I making too much of my kids being obedient? Do I just want them to be little moral kids all the time? And, and I've made that my thing and made that my joy. When your wife doesn't do exactly what you wanted to do and you freak out and you get mad, you need to stop and think, well, what am, why am I making so much of her in the first place? Whether she's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Jesus is supposed to be fulfilling me. Why am I making so much out of her? Gotta be able to catch those things. And let me tell you guys, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be done. Um, one of the biggest things you place the most expectation on is yourself. Seriously. We put more expectations on ourselves than anyone else. And we let ourselves down more than anyone else. It's true. And it's not always just placing expectations on who we are now, what we're doing now. A lot of times it's what we think we're going to be. You know, our expectations are someday I'm going to be this, someday I'm going to have that. Um, I have three practical ways to treasure him more. I don't think I'm going to have time, so I'm just going to say them really quick. Uh, Number one, know his goodness. Get to know him. If he's good, learn about him. The more you know about him, the more you're going to know he's good, the more you're going to trust him, the more you're going to find freedom in his value and his worth. Number two, believe his goodness, okay? Don't just know that he's good. Believe it. If you believe it, it's going to show. And then number three, dwell in his goodness. And that's what we can learn from Mary, right? She was with him. Be with God. If you want to treasure him, learn about him. You want to treasure him, be with him. You want to treasure with him, pray to him. Read about him. Learn about his attributes, and you will naturally begin to treasure him more than whatever the garbage is that we all think is great in our lives. Amen? Okay, let's stand together. And so, Father, tonight we just pray um, that as we go home and as we have conversations, Lord, and Um, maybe you want to do work in this room tonight, I don't know, Father, but as we um, move forward in in our lives, God, we pray that um, we would be able to begin to see where we've made too much of things, too much of people, too much of ourself, and that we would be able to begin to find the freedom that there is in making you the most important thing. So, Lord, make much of yourself, I pray, in our lives, in our hearts, God.